Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of amarillo for your mind, this side of the equator. Uh, I'm half host, Nicholas Larimer, joined by... The other half uh, of the Amarula equation, Gabriel Krauser. And we are going to right. do this whole entire podcast in our radio presenter voices. Exactly, exactly, for that smooth experience. Uh, so we actually talked for almost an hour before the show, where we tried to talk about what we're going to talk about on the show, but we kept getting distracted. So uh, our, our, my apologies uh, if we meander a bit, but we'll try to make it entertaining and insightful nonetheless. So let's start off with the one topic that we did agree on. And um, those of you who follow international news may have noticed uh, that there was a terrible crime in the U.S. recently, a, a very nasty shooting. Um, eight people, most of whom were, uh, I think all of them work in, a, in massage parlors. Yes. Uh, six. No, no, it was, no. Eight, it was eight people. In eight. Total. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, it was eight in total. Were shot at massage parlors. Um, there was a guy going around and he was, this was in Georgia in the U.S. He shot these eight people. And then he got in his car and he tried to drive to Florida to shoot more people in massage parlors, but the police caught him. And when the police questioned him, they said, what are you doing? Why did you do this? And he said, these are vile temptresses and I have a sex addiction and they were trying to tempt me. And I had to, I was a regular customer of theirs. And the only way to free myself from, from these people and from porn and all those things was to kill them all, um, which he, he attempted to do. It then emerged um, on sort of as the first details came in, that six of the people who killed were Asian, um, Asian women, and two of them were white, white women. And um, this immediately started a conversation in the US, as everything seems to do these days, about race. A lot of people on US TV and uh, in the commentariat were like, no, 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 this is a, this is a attack by white supremacy on Asians, and it's an Asian hate crime. And really what's going on here is we're seeing the devastating effects of white of white supremacy on uh, on brown and yellow bodies or something like that, whatever fucking term they use. Oops, <laughs> I shouldn't swear, but whatever term they use. So, um, Gabriel? <laughs> Nick, I can see this gets you under um, your skin. It gets under my skin because this is such a dastardly, damned, vicious, vile thing. Right. So, and so that, that's and that, uh, it, it I, just seems like so the political way, interference is happening. Right. The way I described it is you'd get the, you know, that wasn't actually how the story came out in the media. The story came out in the media as six Asian women um, murdered in massage parlors. Now, yes, there were also two, two, two white people killed as well. Um, but that was the story. And then there were all these statistics out there about how hate crimes against Asians have surged. And some people said hate crimes against Asians have surged since Trump started using the term China virus. And the entire conversation came out about that. Then it was reported what the man had told the police was his motive, was this sort of weird sex addiction thing that he, had, he mentioned. And suddenly the conversation changed to, well, you see, white supremacy means that there are Asian women working in massage parlors at strange hours, and that makes them vulnerable to being killed Nick, by evil you, white you men. Skipped, you skipped a step. Uh, the first oh, way that people, the first way that, uh, what happened is after the first round of reports saying six Asian women killed, uh, by this terrible racist, uh, there was then a clip picked out by Vox and Ezra Klein, uh, who runs Vox is, is someone I've read and followed and listened to. And I think he really 
has a lot of smart things to say, but this is dastardly practice by his publication. They picked out a 20-second clip from the police uh, liaison uh, who was being questioned by the press, where he said, you know, the, the attacker, this 21-year-old, uh, was having a really bad day, and uh, this wasn't a race thing, and and it looks awful to watch that 20-second clip because it looks like the cop is making excuses for this guy while dismissing right. the possibility that it's a bit of white supremacy. But if you watch the full 13-minute video, you see what happens just before that clip is he, he says, this is what, under police questioning, this is what he told us. This was his version. Right. His version, he said, he was having a really bad day. He was super stressed out. He was super freaked out. And this had nothing to do with race. This was about the sexual preference. Now, I have read in the right. world, I have read in, in six mainstream American news publications and seen on the one that we all get on DSTV, uh, that context being removed. So it seems like it's what the, the police liaison was saying as spin. He was trying to spin the story rather than him reporting this guy's version and making right. it clear that the police are investigating this. They're not buying it. Uh, they, they're scratching deeper. That, was, that context was totally removed. But guess what else was removed? The liaison. He was pulled out from the position because of the backlash uh, coming from all of these news publications saying that he's uh, <sighs> pleading special mercy uh, for the guy who had a really bad day. And you look at the headlines. I mean, coming out of the Washington Post. It's uh, right. It's really bad. And then a so, uh, bit of context comes in and then people say, well, no, look, the real racist thing is that is that Asian ladies uh, work in parlors. <sighs> right. So <laughs> this is this is yet another another example. Of, uh, and, and, and it's very interesting to me how this dynamic seems to form. Right. I used to spend quite a lot of time on Twitter and whenever some horrible thing like this happened, you know, some horrible crime, you'd immediately see the different sort of political tribes on Twitter uh, waiting for that first little detail about who was killed and who did the killing. Mm. And then they'd start to spin it in some way. And the narrative would just change as the more details got added in to 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 conform to whatever the uh, uh, the original was. So, you know, oh, this guy's like the first thing people do is they go and find the person's name who did the shooting and then they look at their Facebook profile to see if they made posts in support of any political candidate, for example, um, and then try to tar that entire side with it. And then because a lot of the American journalists are on Twitter, they often seem to pick up that narrative. And the initial reporting usually is just a repeat of their tribe's analysis on Twitter, yeah. um, which, yeah. as you can imagine, is not the most thorough or thought through uh, kind of thing twitter's kind of weird it's like it's like a it's like a sports game i know when we talk about a steam economies gabriel likes to use the example of, of sports teams but on twitter it really is like that except the game is you need to score points against the other team to where you show how bad they are and the the thing you use to score points is pieces of news so the game the skill in the game is spinning that news into such a way that it fits your grand narrative of how mm. the other side is evil mm. um and this is this story this happens all the time, especially with race stories. But in this case, 
it's exactly what happened, I think, to start off with. And now, if you ask people about, you know, what, why did that guy go and kill that? You know, people who don't really yeah. follow the news very closely, they'll probably say, oh, it's because he, he, he killed all those Asian ladies because he hates Asians. Well, maybe he does, but we don't know that. Yeah. I mean, that's what I thought until a friend of mine who is a journalist um, on an email chain said that he had found something in the local Georgia news, which contradicted the narrative. And then I went looking into it. And can can I just just tell you? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Can I say one more thing? This is a common theme in US reporting. Local papers are much better and more thorough, not all the time, but most of the time than the national media, which tends to fit everything into these grand narratives. Yeah. So um, I just want to give two further bits of context. One is that, uh, you know, in really respectable publications, uh, there's been this figure cited of 150% increase in Asian American directed anti Asian American hate crimes in the last year. Right. And the argument is that um, the coronavirus is, you know, came from China. Uh, the president blamed it on the Chinese. Uh, there have been uh, speculations about whether it was deliberately manufactured and then accidentally leaked. Uh, or whether it is even, you know, worse, sort of deliberately manufactured and then deliberately leaked uh, into the population. And so people are are very anti the virus, and so they end up becoming very anti-Asian. Now, a friend of mine, uh, a journalist uh, living in Europe, he looked into this, and he sent me the study or the fact sheets coming from this university. Uh, it's CBS you see csusb um i'll tell you the the center for the study of hate and extremism and they have these figures uh that have been used by the financial times and and uh half a dozen other sources that i've that i've now i think i can quote basically every story on this yeah so so if you look at the actual data uh, anti-Asian uh, hate crimes went in Chicago from two to three, from two to two, in 2019 versus 2020. In Phoenix, Arizona, from two to three. Uh, in Washington D.C., from six down to three, so that's a decrease of 50 percent. In Philadelphia, from two to six. In Cleveland, from two to six. In San Francisco, from 6 to 9. In San Jose, from 4 to 10. In Seattle, from 9 to 12. In Boston, from 6 to 14. In Los Angeles, 7 to 15. And in New York City, from 3 to 28. So the overall increase of 150% is largely uh, based on New York City, firstly. And secondly, this data, there's a problem with this data in that anyone who has looked at this kind of data at all will tell you that it doesn't capture the totality of events, that some things go unreported or they get reported under different matrices. So, you know, someone can get beaten up and mugged and it gets reported as a, as a robbery, uh, but the motive right. of that criminal was to go and uh, punk Mug, uh, person yeah. or whatever right right and uh 
And because you never catch the perpetrator, you you never prove you that. Don't know. Mm, so mm. when you're going from three to six or two to three or six to 14 or seven to 15, there's a very serious statistical chance that what's happening there is reporting has changed rather than pattern and practice. Right. So people are more sensitive to this uh, political part. I mean, the Democrats, but also the Republicans had been speaking out against uh, anti-Asian kind of bigotry saying, you know, this might be from the most reasonable thing to say, I suppose, is like, even if you believe the Chinese government has done that, like you, you a, a Chinese right, American it's not the person, Chinese people. Yeah, that'd be the most reasonable way. And, and then the, the other alternative is sort of some of the uh, politicians going out and eating Chinese food conspicuously and hugging people in Chinatown, even while the virus is spreading to say, you know, we must. Right. There was that absurdity. That, 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 that happened in the early stages in New York, right? Yeah. Early stages of lockdown. So the point is that sends signals all the way up and down the esteem market to the to the police commissioners, to uh, cops on the beat, to uh, paper pushers in the administration and to ordinary people that this is now a salient issue. And that increases the likelihood that someone who's reporting a crime or someone who's categorizing a crime is going to be looking at it uh, as as a race based hate crime. I'm not saying that this explains the the total increase from 50 reported events in the year in 2019 to 120 in 2020. But I am saying that if you look at the city by city breakdown, this, the, the number changes are so small with the exception of New York that um, it's just and the absolute values are so small that it's quite possible that what you're seeing is a reporting shift rather than a pattern and practice shift. And no one that I've seen write about this has even begun to, to question that. And, and that's, uh, that, that sort of irritates me because I think that science is, is such an important thing to build trust in, real good science. And because I think the best way to erode trust in good science is to take a half-baked study and then report it as a solid fact without any confidence interval. Right. I mean, there's nothing like a confidence interval in the vicinity of this of this so-called fact sheet. And if you were to put a confidence interval in here, I mean, uh, it's 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 there's no doubt it's going to be larger than the quanta uh, involved. In other words, it's going to render this statistically meaningless. And if you go right. further down the fact sheet, you've got very strange you know you've got backward dating data you've got a google trends report um that that says google trends keyword search as an example of internet behavior indicating an increase in racial animus where the first keyword term is china virus so unsurprisingly right. you see a huge spike in china virus searches on google starting around march 2020 uh but there's i mean there's nothing to my mind uh, to suggest that that is racial animus, um, I think that it's. It, I think it, it's 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 a long-standing, and as it turns out, pretty useful convention to refer to viruses by the place of origin because the technical names are quite hard. I started right. calling it SARS-CoV-2 right from the beginning because I was reading academic journals. But when I was writing for layman or speaking on the radio or on TV, I didn't want to always say SARS-CoV-2 uh, because it it sometimes comes off as like wonky or pretentious. 
Um, right. The China virus, much like MERS, uh, much like most obviously the Spanish flu, which didn't even come from Spain. The, these are right. terms of convention, and, and that convention has become even more obvious with the UK variant, the South African variant, the Brazil variant. Uh, uh, you might say, not like I'm, I'm South African surprised. Variant. But who knows the number of the Brazil variant? I can tell you what the number is. Uh, the, the, the sort of <laughs> but that's because I'm right. a nerd who's like reading these papers all of the time. It's just so. But to make it even weirder, in the in the in this fact sheet, we've got Google keyword search. China virus is not even written out. It's written as CH dash dash A virus, as if China Which is a is a swear is word. A, it's that a racist dog whistle. Yeah. That that you that you can't even mutter. I, I must say I'm I'm rather surprised that Wuhan flu didn't take off. I know it's not technically a flu, um, but that does sound like it would have been the best name for the thing because it kind of has a sort of lyrical term to it, doesn't it? Well, or am I or am I wrong? No, I think it sounds right. I'm look. I'm happy. SARS-CoV-2. Come up with a new convention. Don't call them by their names, by their place names. Give it, give another kind of thing. That's fine, but don't, but don't call people racist who are using these other conventions. Right. Um, and the, the the other point that I want to make is, uh, just in case you think we're media bashing and and we think we're the only people who who know the truth. Of course, there are these these useful uh, local level outlets, but I also just want to draw the listeners' attention. If you do feel like reading a, a very interesting take, go to the Los Angeles Times. It's not behind a paywall. This particular article is by Tracy Quinn, Q-U-A-N. I'm not sure how to really pronounce that. But Tracy is uh, has spent a lot of her life working as a prostitute, a sex worker, and right. is also a novelist and a, a very successful novelist at that. And often her novels are about, you know, Call girl in Miami or call girl living the high life in Paris or gay Paris or whatever. So right. she's 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 good at sort of thinking about these issues and writing about these issues. And she writes for the Los Angeles Times basically about how sorry, and she's Asian American. So she's hitting the sort of yeah. intersection of social identities that people are so uh keen on, uh, yeah. Keen on. And 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 she speaks quite movingly about how much easier it is for people to talk about race than it is to talk about sex and how plausible she finds it that this guy was not racially motivated but was sexually motivated that he was a sex addict that he'd been to rehabilitation a sort of pseudo-christian kind of rehab camp and that he'd been completely off the pornography masturbation thing for a while and that this was some kind of relapse and she paints right, a sort of vivid kind of psychological picture and 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 I think speaks with with a, a, with with sensitivity about about the privacy of sex and how mm. that makes it very difficult to talk about versus the publicity of race and I mean right. her, her general thrust is that she's frustrated that as a sex worker she thinks this is a very important moment to highlight how 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 bad it is to diss sex workers. Now, this in itself is is complicated for me from a steam market point of view, because um, on the one hand, my feeling is that if someone in my family, you know, I imagine my, you know, if I had children one day, if I'm lucky enough to have that blessing, 
and and my son or my daughter um sort of comes to me at 15 or 16 and says you know we just had like a career day at school and 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 it turns out i tick all the boxes i want to be a sex worker i would be <laughs> i would be angry <laughs> right i would i would try to guide him or her away from that um i would you know i would i, I would show disregard or disesteem so right so i'm not going to pretend like i don't have that attitude on the other hand, um, I, as a classical liberal, I I do take the view that people's bodily autonomy is very important. I don't think it's totally trumping. I'm not for uh, being able to auction off your kidneys, for example. Uh, so, so I don't think that classical liberalism entails uh, that uh, sex work should be legal. Um, but I do think it suggests some good arguments for why it should be legal, for why adults consenting, uh, sober right. and judicious, uh, should be able to make this decision. And why, if they make this decision, we should be tolerant and tolerant not in the soft sense of like, oh, go do you, but tolerant in the hard sense, which always means being intolerant to those who would abuse financially or violently right. uh, in those kinds of hard right. ways, there is people who've made this choice. And in that sense, I would very much like to stand up for sex workers and say there's just absolutely no right. way that you should be spat at, much less uh, right. have your livelihood taken away, much less have your life taken away. And this right. is an important uh, moment that, for that and conversation. And Tracy is just like, what the hell? We're completely sidestepping this conversation. And just my last right. point on this, you know, there's something very interesting about America uh, that I've known since I was a small child, which is that you can kill someone quite violently in a movie and have it sort of PG-10. Uh, but if you go past kissing someone in the cheek, it very quickly pops up to PG-16, 18. You know, they've got a... <laughs> And at the same time, you watch the Grammys, you watch, you know, they, they, all this, like, it's like hypersexualized, opening the legs, dancing in underwear in front of crowds of thousands. I mean, all of the music award shows that I've watched for the last five years have been almost disturbingly erotic in a very unerotic way, actually. I mean, it's, it's so, right. it's, it's such a meat mask. It's, it's yeah. very crass. Yeah. Right, but at the right. same time, they've got this like prurient. Anyway, there's basically, the American public square right. hasn't figured out how to think about or deal with sex. And, and this would be a good moment. If you are going to have a broader political conversation, this would be a good time to do it. And, right. and it's just not being done. Yeah, there's, a, there, there, there's I think, a lot of uh, cultural complexity around this and that people really haven't agreed at all on what the rules are. Um, and part of that is that on the left itself, which tends to, to, to hold a lot of the cultural power in these spaces, um, there is a big disagreement between different branches of feminism, between the, I think they call them sex positive and sex negative feminists, who have disagreements about, you know, whether, yeah. right, uh, you know, flaunting your sexuality is empowering or not, and what women should should be encouraged to do with their bodies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, look, I think I think there is a very basic rule which we can also follow in this thing, which is I agree with your, your you know, I wouldn't want a family member getting involved in sex work. Um so I don't think it's a, a, an esteemable career, but there is, there are obviously a lot of people who do, especially in the past, but still probably today, who take that too far. And when they hear about a prostitute getting murdered or something, they don't care because it was yeah. just another prostitute, 
right? Yeah. And that's yeah. exactly the, the the evil, right? That's that's yeah. really something that should be crushed and, and fought against because you know the in the people, media, this is obviously. what the, this, this, right. you know this is what the opinion side, the news side of the media should be reporting the facts in context, and the opinion side of the media right. should be spreading those ideas to try and reach people um, that are that are sort of in two minds about whether it's a you know, if you're at all in two minds about whether it's okay for for right. for a brothel to be to be massacred, then then it's a good it's you should you should be you should be you know just given the chance to realize it's actually a very simple thing. It 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 should never right. happen. Nothing like that should happen. Yes, it's it, uh, it, yeah. It's a surprisingly simple co- it's a surprisingly simple concept that people shouldn't be subject to violence unless they're committing violence, um, and yet. Uh, a lot of people seem to kind of miss that miss that point, um, or, or or believe that you can't you can't have this nuanced view, and you have to either be all one way or the other, which is a common problem in in our right uh, in our politics, but particularly in how the Americans seem to discuss uh, any political issue. Is uh, you know, if Team A thinks B, then Team yes. C must think not B. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, yeah. Look, uh, but but there is. I will say though that the uh, the sort of wokeisters have are talking a little bit about the point you're talking about in their own weird way, and that's the anti-capitalism point. Their claim is they're they're trying to make the the thing about sex workers, but of course because their minds are so adult and they now see race and capitalism as basically you know part of the same conversation. Um, they say, ah, oh, you see, but this is what white supremacy, i.e., capitalism, does. Is that it makes women work in unprotected sex shops yeah. or something like that, or massage parlors in this case, and, which, yeah. <clears throat> which are, um, which is, it hasn't been explicitly spelled out in a lot of the reporting, but uh, the very strong implication here is that these were basically brothels under another name. Yeah, and just to give some explanation for why why we've been talking about these massage parlors as if they're brothels, it's not because we're racist to think that anytime there's an Asian massage parlor. I mean, they're not even Asian massage parlors, but anytime there's a massage parlor with right. Asians, that that it's a brothel. Um, the reason we've been talking like this is that uh, public r- reviews have uh, made explicit the claims that people have uh, paid money for sex there at these at the right. sort of chain, and that uh, police have released reports that they had a prostitution sting set up, where basically you send in a cop. Right. And he he solicits sex for money, and then before it actually happens, um, arrests the person for for prostitution. I, so there's, believe, so there's hard credible I, evidence. That, I believe uh, I believe the accused here also claimed that he had actually paid for sex at these places before. Whether he's credible or not is another question, but that yeah. that was his. He said that he was a regular customer, and I think some of the people there said that they knew him. Uh, some of the victims or some of the people who worked at the thing had come across him before. So I want to say a broader thing about about Asian Americans. Because I think this is also part of the reason that this has been a very a very interesting case study. So uh I mean even the even the term Asian American is a bit confusing. Like the West, it can sometimes uh it sometimes strikes me as as a as a term without a referent, which is a nice philosophy. The philosopher's way of saying I don't know what it means, <laughs> um, and that's because under you know if you if you if you come from Kazakhstan or uh, 
most of Russia by landmass. Uh, you're an Asian, yeah. You're an Asian, <laughs> and if you immigrate to America, you should be an Asian American. But that's not how, what it means. Um, right. Indians. Yeah, there's other weird the things. Right, like they include Indians, they include Thai people, they include uh, the Kazakhs who look more, I guess, Asian, stereotypically East Asian. Um, Koreans, Japanese are all included in this very big bubble. It's a little bit like the term Hispanic, but possibly even worse. Uh, in that it attempts to define something, but like without much connecting tissue. Yeah, so this is just a sort of background indication of, of how difficult it is. Our job at the Institute of Race Relations is to try and understand what's going on with race relations. And part of what's difficult about that job is it's sometimes hard to know what the hell a race is supposed to mean. Um, but, yeah. but that said, you know, there are really good data on median incomes, education levels, uh, uh, participation in, in, the, in the professions. I, I just mean the old school sense of sort of lawyers and doctors um, right. and the like. And Indian Americans and East Asian Americans, and, and, you, and you sort of break it down and you get slightly different things depending on what country you're actually talking about. Um, but generally speaking, outperform white Americans. And, and, yes. and sort of, I, I'm talking about the kind of rate where the statistical margins of error that you have are very much smaller than the difference between, uh, between the, the so-called races. And that's deeply troubling to, to uh, proponents of a project that aligns capitalism with white supremacy. Because right, it's hard because, to understand, yeah. Because in theory, right, if, you know, the system is set up to promote whiteness and white people at all times, and then suddenly Asians come in and start doing very well in the system, it kind of suggests that maybe the forces there are not as strong as you as you suggested. Um, but have you heard their, their answer to explain this, that the one that's been kicking about? Go ahead. The idea of the model minority. Now, I must admit, I don't fully understand it. But the sort of work answer here seems to be, oh, well, you see, if minorities behave in a way that's um, similar to whiteness, then they get praised and lifted up through the system because their display, their submission to whiteness means that they are worthy of praise. And so the system rewards them. And this is the claim made by people like, um, what's that, 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 that journalist's name, the one who won the Pulitzer Prize, Nicole Hannah-Jones from yeah. New York Times? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe she said stuff along these lines before that the reason that Asian Americans are doing well is because whites view them as a template and then use and then and then use Asians as a tool to hit everyone else with to say, why can't you be more like the Asians? Um, so this is the sort of work he's to claim. And and so which why that why that ties into this incident is that and I remember this from when I was living in New York and when I was studying in the States. It was very hard to make that kind of argument without doing the same boring race essentialist thing of ignoring the diversity within race groups. Because you'd hear this kind of argument while eating food in little Koreatown, which is sort of on 34th <laughs> Street or wherever it is close to the middle of New York City. And on the one hand, you're like eating with, with, with the Korean investment bankers and they're ordering fabulously delicious sort of whiskey that's been imported from Japan because they think it's better than the Scott stuff. And on the other hand, you're being served 
by immigrants who who still learning English and who don't have a good education and are very much in a different part of the of the food scheme. And uh, you know, everyone at the party, uh, regardless of their race, has the same trope in mind of what kinds of uh, funny business you can get up to at some massage parlors. Uh, so there's this diversity within the Asian community that that isn't easily fed into this thing of like, okay, well, hold on. This is how it works. The white people have all the power and all of the money. Uh, this race, and they're all the same. And this race, the Asians, uh, they're all the same. And they've acted well. So the white people have rewarded them with lots of power and money. How do you square that with the fact that, well, within one of these groups, you have a huge diversity of income and of kinds of jobs that people perform. Uh, right. Specifically, I mean, restaurant, the restaurant business in America, the, the it's huge. And the restaurant business is very hard, kind of labor-intensive, uh, low-skills business. And it and it's the perfect place to go for for first-generation immigrants. And, uh, and the, the kinds of Asians that generally do very well in the economy are the ones who've got good educations either coming from home or their second or third generation. The first generation kind yeah, of, you yeah. know, does the restaurant work and sends the kids to a good school they get into an ivy league they become a doctor so so, so one of the one of the exciting things is is that finally you've got an excuse or a reason to talk about uh asian massage parlors and 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 say no this is this is part of the problem oh not not such a model minority after all i mean this is not what uh the right. the white uh, evangelical you know uh, prurian church types or whatever yeah. yeah. Once. And, right. and and I think and and, and, and the other side, sorry, just you, and the other side of it is that is that at Ivy League universities, um, there has been at many of them, not all of them, but there has been a longstanding and increasing policy of discriminating against uh Asians. Asian people. Because uh if you don't do that, if you just go on merit uh, you you start finding, as we spoke about in a, in a recent podcast, you start finding your maths and physics and engineering departments, and also increasingly your humanities and arts and right. music and sound departments are just full of brilliant kids who who just don't have blue eyes and you know sort of funny coloured beards like me. Yeah, isn't it? And and it's I think that's funny? a bloody shame. I think it's a shame that American institutions discriminate against Asian people, um, and. But it's based on an ideology, which which needs, which 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 needs a story like this to be um, turned into a, a complicated kind of analysis of how how really the problem is still whiteness, and and, and that's and and, and capitalism because. If you if you and, and and you know the sort of critical race theorist work types, they're quite upfront about this actually in their literature. If you ask them, you know, why is the waiter poor but the investment bankers are rich, they will tell you is because the investment bankers act white. And then you say, Well, what does that mean? And when you look at some of the ways that these these theorists define whiteness, it's very difficult to uh, interpret it as anything but race racist stereotyping of non-white people. Yeah. Which is they define whiteness as things like hard work, punctuality, um, respect uh, for authority, yeah, <laughs> respect for authority. Just like the things that are generally considered in in any system on Earth as the way to become a successful and fulfilled human being. So, 
wokeness seems to define whiteness as success and everything else as like you know whatever's whatever's not the success bubble which is so insane it is like i cannot think it's like if if you were a lab it went to a lab as a neo-nazi and you tried to design a philosophy to ruin the lives of 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 uh you know the majority of 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 poor black and asian and whatever people across the world this is probably what you'd come up with because it uses all of these um things that we have in our mind you know from the past about stopping discrimination about stopping racism these are values that have been very strongly inculcated in society since the 60s uh, at least in a lot of places in the world and it uses this as a prop to say to 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 undermine the foundations uh, of success and happiness in a very in a very insidious way and that that i think to me is 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 the way that you know that they're the real racists <laughs> right well so this is so this is i mean this is a point i keep coming back to but it's like we god damn it we all know that there's a problem i mean there's many problems actually and race is the fact that there are racists in their numbers of all yes. colors judging others yeah. by the color of their skin that is a right. bad problem and a, there are conceptually a, two kinds of solution there are only two kinds and if anyone can think of a third option please let me know because you'll 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 do me a big favor in doing that but the only two that i can see mapping the conceptual space is either you say we need to stop judging people by the color of their skin and not just right. stop judging people, but stop predicating uh, patterns and practice. So stop saying things like hard work is an yeah. Asian thing to do or a white thing to right. do. And being musical is a, is a black a thing black to do, whatever. Right. Stop predicating. It, it, it's not an informative predicate. It's not an informative noun in any character-based sense and anything to do with dispositions and capacities. So that's the one solution is to stop doing that linguistically and to – and to diss people who do do that. And sometimes right. you've got to diss them. Sometimes you've got to inform. I think that's, I, I don't think it's one or the other. It might be one or the other in a particular moment, but as an overall strategy, you've got to do a bit of both because it's it's damn shameful to be a racist ultimately. Uh, but, but you don't always want to go in like that. Sometimes you want to be quite sweet and just sort of say, let me explain how your own ideas contradict themselves and don't end up serving the purposes that you intend them to serve and so on. There's a right, nice right. strategy there. So that's the one option, non-racialism. The other option is better racialism. Is you say, well, no, look here, the problem is that these stereotypes and these expectations and these codes of conduct by race, you know, these people should act like this, these people should act like that, they're not working for us. What we need is better codes of conduct for each race. So this race right. must be more subservient because it's been too arrogant. And this race must be more assertive because it's been so, too subservient. This race must not work so hard because it's been working too hard. And this other race must sort of have a more can-do attitude because it's been uh, yeah. playing on the back foot for too long. And, and, and there you get the language of codes of conduct, of norms, of how you should and shouldn't behave according to your race. And, and, and the idea that that's going to work. And I remember this idea. I remember as a little kid, uh, you know, I, much like you, Nick, I, you know, I grew up in, in a, not just a family, but like a broader adult society that was yes. super non-racialist. But every now and then you right. do come across like a, a funny old chap who says things like, I, yes. I will never forget when I was like seven years old, 
I was picking my nose. I was just picking a booger out of my nose. A schnally. <laughs> a big old and salty it, one. Uh, a big old saucy one. And I picked it on. And I looked at it. And I kind of like was like tempted to like do a little taste. I was just a little kid. What are you going to do? It's a bit gross. <laughs> <laughs> and this and this guy said to me, this, old, this guy said to me, sis, man, don't do that. Uh, white people shouldn't do that kind of thing. And it was such a startling idea to me. (laughs) Like, I knew that you shouldn't do it. Like, kids at school and, you know, other parents and other kids, you know, had, like, complained to each other about it. And I'd been to a party the previous weekend and the birthday boy was, like, picking his booger and, like, eating them. And it was, like, a little party trick and the parents weren't looking. He was a white kid. But I'd, I'd never thought. It just was, it seemed so strange to me that, that he would think, this is the kind of behavior that if you if you if you weren't white, I would have nothing to say. That's fine. Eat all your schnallies. Go ahead, knock yourself out. But because you're white, you right. shouldn't do this was crazy. But you I that I grew up a little bit, I read some history. You look at how a lot of Nat uh propaganda worked, you looked at how the the nasty side of the church worked, not the good side. Uh and and you see that there were these codes of conduct uh indexed by race. And, and anyway, I mean, those are the two options, hey, like either you, either you think like that, like picking boogers and, and figuring out the two plus two is four and, uh, being polite to your elders and so on are things that some races should do and others shouldn't, or, or you don't think that you think the opposite. Yeah, that sounds an, you, and, that sounds and an awful just, lot like a. It sounds an awful lot like a caste system, um, and I think history shows that those are not particularly good for anyone involved, not even yeah. the people who are supposed to be on top uh, ever. Uh, as you point out all the time, Gabriel, racial nationalism and racial engineering and that kind of thing has never worked for anyone ever. Dude, if <laughs> that, anyone that can, can come find. up with a counterexample, please, please, it'll be right. so interesting. <laughs> There are so it few always ones. ends up in some sort of disaster for the people doing the engineering, even if it's yeah. to benefit their own race, right? Yeah. Uh, and of course, Nazi Germany is the most obvious example of that, um, where Hitler said, we're going to expand Germany, revitalize the economy, and make Rule sure that communism years. is kept out of Germany. Right, rule for a thousand years and make sure communism is kept out of Germany. And what happened? Germany got smaller, its whole economy got bombed into dust and they had to rebuild it and communists took over half the country. So, (laughs) (laughs) literally the opposite of the goal. (laughs) Because it doesn't work. It's stupid. It's it's, it's really, really stupid. And it's really... And of course, today in South Africa, we continue to see it, right? Okay, so Nick, I want to segue to to the, the... the million dollar question. Yes. What is the million Why dollar? do we keep doing the stupid? Right. Now, you had an interesting conversation with our colleague Becky on this, didn't you, recently, mm. telling me a little bit about it. Then uh, I guess, the, so the question is, why do we keep falling for racial nationalism? Why does it just happen over and over again? It's been tried in so many different places. It's been tried in Europe at various times. It's been tried in America at various times. And of course, it's been tried in South Africa for whites, and now it's been tried for black South Africans, right? It just, it's it's like a bad 
you know, it's it's like that person who says, oh, no, I'm trying to quit smoking and then just goes and has another cigarette over and over again. Yep. So why is it happening, Gabriel? Tell us. Because I say, well, I'm taking somewhere. a drag out of this bloody cancer stick. Okay, so... <laughs> so, so... My so last week I took Becky Machlobo, uh, one of our younger colleagues, uh, for a trip to do some fact finding, and I had to go pick him up at his house, and uh, it's sort of far away on the on the East Rand, sort of past the airport kind of a vibe, right by the Heidelberg toll road, and interesting little suburb, uh, because it you know when it was established. It uh, it was all black. Uh, it was right where the, the the Nats wanted black people to be, far away, but close enough that if they spent a hell of a lot of time in a taxi, they could get to work. But there was a bit of an experiment done there, which is instead of renting people uh, abodes, or they were given title deeds. And the suburb. I mean, the reason I found this out is I, after picking up Becky, we were driving through. I was like, dude, this is so nice. You know, everyone is so house proud. It's, it's, it's humble. This is not Sandhurst or Westcliff or Clifton, but every right. lawn is mowed. Every structure has its little awnings and its walls are yeah. neat. And it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a good suburb. It's a really good suburb. And I come from Yeovil. This, Inner city suburb <laughs> that was not a good suburb, <laughs> which is really not a good suburb. I mean, it was like this 30 years ago, right? And uh, and to a lot of people, uh, one of the banes of my life is is that they is that they think the difference is black people moved in, and Yeovil now right. it's just it's holes and stolen electricity and crime and rubbish everywhere and poo on the streets. I mean, literally over the road from. In the Oval House, there is just a new convention where the rubbish is dumped on the pavement. And so Picky Tub comes with a bulldozer once every two weeks to collect the rubbish. <laughs> like, not with a crane, with like a scoop, with like a with like a four-ton scoop. And it's and it's ripped into the pavement. It's ripped into the road. It's ripping down one of the old jacaranda trees because it because it digs into its roots. But that's how we pick up the rubbish, like right in front of the balcony. I watch it. It's insane. Uh, I will say. I will say. I will say that sewage in the streets though is not any more unique to uh, Yeovil. Um, so that uh, Johannesburg's collapsing municipal infrastructure is making it a reality of all of our suburbs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, we've been there actually for... a lot of those northern, a lot of those northern suburbs where they built like a million billion uh, complexes, because yeah. they get overloaded. They never upgrade yeah. the infrastructure, and then the things all burst. Ugh. Anyway, yeah. So, so the difference you think is 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 title deeds. Well, this was the this was the argument Becky was making to me. Right, Becky is a very very committed Austrian libertarian type dude. And he was just he like, but he was like, yeah, true just, soldier. he was like, come on, man, just think about it. Where you living, the, 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 the banks redlined it. So people couldn't get loans. Uh, people are renting it out. There's, there's, there's invasions of the, of the bigger, you know, building Buildings, hijackings, yeah, building hijacking. Yeah, yeah. 
so there's so 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 people don't all they're doing is they're trying to extract wealth there's no incentive to build whereas with us like we've been sitting here everyone owns their piece of turf so they want to preserve it they want to make it nice and if someone's doing the wrong thing they intervene he said in that part of the world like the idea of of uh, xenophobic uh, mobs coming and and looting spaza shops is uh, <laughs> He said, "That's that, that, it's not an idea we countenance. Uh, after the first round of xenophobic <laughs> attacks, there was a great gathering of the of the elders in the suburb, and they and they went because because all of the foreigners had left, running the right. spaza shops, and they went and when they came back, they said, guys, you must never leave again. If a mob ever comes to think of touching you, we, yeah, take you my phone us. number, take my phone number, take my phone number. We will be there before the mob, and that mob will will rue the day. You know, these are these are good neighbors." It's a neighborhood. Yes. I live in a in a social experiment. They live in a neighborhood. In a war zone. And neighbors, man, that's all I want. It's just neighbors. People who like will phone the police if they hear a problem. In Yeovil, if there's a problem, three days later we get around and we're like, oh, did anyone phone the police? No, we're too worried. That one, oh. Sometimes you phone, put on a different accent. The Sutu lady's always phoning the police and pretending to be Nigerian. The Nigerians always phoning it, <laughs> pretending to be Zulu. It's like no one, everyone's as afraid of the police as they are of each of the criminals and each other. It's uh, anyway. This is this is this is a uh, this is uh, just a build up to to the conversation that we had about. So Becky was saying, you know, but you know, as much as I like this, uh, I see when my some some of my friends that have been friends for life, they go to university and then mm, they start getting ideas. And I and and I and and we talk to each other and we talk to each other respectfully and and this is the thing, they start out by saying you know the problem is we're not doing well because white people are are just taking all the money they're oppressing us, and then Becky right. says, can you tell me a way? T tell me the way that they're doing this. You know, apartheid. We knew how they were doing it. How yes, are they what, doing it today? What, what's the physical mechanism, right? Mm. Practical man. So then they say, is, is there someone who comes around with a big bag with like a RAND sign on it? And they just scoop up money out of households. <laughs> <laughs> they say it's the land. <laughs> the whites have the land and we don't have the land and the land is the source of wealth. And then Becky says, no, but you're not thinking very seriously because uh, the most valuable land in the country is not valuable because... Uh, of its extent. It's, it's valuable because of its location and the way it gets to be valuable because of its location is because of the infrastructure you've built on top of it. You know, a piece of turf right. is... A small piece of turf is that if you build a big office... There's a lot of, land, lot of land in the Karoo. Yeah. So then Long they say, no, no, okay, never mind the land. It's because th that system you're describing of investment and making money out of it, it's, 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 it's capitalism. And the white people have designed capitalism to to benefit themselves and to oppress us. And that comes to, sorry, the second step I'm skipping is the way that you that you can build things on top of the land is by already having money. And the way that white people made lots okay. of money to make lots of buildings was through colonialism, was through stealing money from us. And then the third thing is the way that they perpetuate this is by is by capitalism. And and Becky had these like neat arguments step for step, debunking each one of these steps. But he said, Gabriel, it's not working. I can I can address them on any step, but then you get to the next step, and then I address that, and you get to the next step and you address that, and then they sort of come back to the first step. 
or you know it's like somehow the whole argument never really managed to get through. Right. It's like I've, I've beaten him have, on the premises, have, but not the you, conclusion. Have you ever seen that meme where Patrick the starfish is being explained something and he gets the wrong answer. So the guy says, no, okay, let's go through this. And he explains each step and he's like, and, and Patrick follows along and he gets each step and he's like, right, right. And then he says, and so the conclusion is, and he just goes back to the wrong answer. It's exactly that. <laughs> exactly that. And, and, and the other meme is the, is that guy, Joey from friends. You've got like, you know, right. one of the more reasonable people explaining to Joey <laughs> and, and he sort of gets it step for step and then he just gets the wrong conclusion. So, right. so, uh, so I, I tried this theory out on Becky and, and he thought it was interesting. So I'm going to try it out on you. Okay. My theory is that there are two basic modes of thinking that we need to attend to. And that the one is the zero sum game where okay. there's no value to be added. The food is already on the table. The family's gathered around. We've already placed the orders. The Uber Eats is not coming back. Or mom already, dad already made dinner. The, the food is there. Now it's just a matter of who gets the who gets the breast, who gets the leg, who gets the wing. Right. And that's one way of thinking. And this is a very important way to think. Sometimes this is the reality that you're facing. And you must be able to think in this way. Well... It's it's a very natural way to think for human beings who are literally, you know, living on the plains, hunting and dividing up animals, which is where we evolved, right? That is our natural sort of way of looking at at a lot of economics. Is how does the family or the tribe share the 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 buffalo, the the, the, the mammoth, whatever we've yes. captured? Right, exactly. So sharing is very important, and sharing is very closely related to the esteem economy. Uh, yeah. It's not to say that the highest status person will always get the, the most meat, although usually right. that's how it turns out. Uh, right. it, it might be that the highest status person, you can flip that pyramid upside down, be the highest status person is the one who eats last. In many families, the, the matriarch or the patriarch will be the last one to dish uh, because that right. is, that's how you know they've got the status in a way, is they show their, they show their kindness, most obviously. And I like this yes. way of thinking. I really do. I, I I find myself, you know, when I reflect on on happy moments in my life, they are shared moments, uh, or they're moments sort of where where the the outside structure is defined by sharing. And I loved Africa Burn, where it really was the case. You go along. <laughs> of course, you did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's. I specifically thing. never went because I didn't like the hippie sharing stuff. <laughs> But that's, no, but that's you, just me. You're, you're not such a hard <laughs> man as you sometimes pretend. I've seen you in circumstances where you've been very generous. Okay, so, and very sweet. But, I, okay, we won't dwell on that. The point is that there is another mode of thinking, which is how can we add the most value right now? And this is also a very important mode of thinking. And and at work, sometimes these things kind of intersect and and and, con and conflict with each other because sometimes it's like, you know, who gets to do the next interview? Well, should we give it to the person who hasn't done an interview in a while and want to get their name out there? Or should we give it to the person who we're going to be think is the best suited to doing this interview? So there's this sort of like, how can we add the most value to the public square by delivering the best form of the argument, injecting the best preponderance of good ideas into right, the arena? Right. Or how do we actually keep morale up? 
and let me tell you the the simple answer is 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 we don't we we believe that morale is kept up by <laughs> by adding the most value. <laughs> <laughs> with each other in that regard. Um, but, but, you know, different offices and different companies and everyone will, you know, we, 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 there's always going to be moments where you do a bit of one and do a bit of the other. Now, here's the problem. If you're thinking in a, in a, in a, in a sharing non-value add way, chances are you're going to get a non-value add solution. So right. when you're thinking about economic growth, when you're thinking about policy, this is a very bad way of thinking. Now, let's suppose you wanted to get people to think in a, in a zero-sum game way. The first kind of asset that you'd bring to mind would be land. Because land is what it is. I mean, short mm. of literally piling sand from the desert onto the coast to further stretch out the expanse, which is a very expensive thing to do. Right. Hard. There really just is so much land. It's it's a fixed thing. Right. It's it's of all of the interesting assets. It's just about the most fixed it's, asset it's, there is. It's it's also simple and understandable, right? It's there. You can see it. You can touch it. It makes sense. And there is no more or less of it, so it gets you right. in that mode of thinking. And that's why the land question is so important. You look at our surveys, people. The land hunger. People are hungry for residences close to work. People are hungry for <laughs> yes. uh, the ability to live in a home that doesn't get robbed or to walk from home right. to the shops without getting robbed, to have this right. interesting or, thing where you or press be the close button to a nice school and the electricity turns on. There's very, <laughs> it's a great bit it's of magic. It's getting rare these days, but yes. <laughs> that's what people want. But we talk about the land issue in South Africa in this very zero-sum game way because it suits this, the zero-sum the, the zero game way yeah. of thinking. Then you go from there to colonialism. Now, as it happens, uh, we won't go into this into, into too much detail now because we've done it elsewhere, but colonialism cost more than it made for many of the countries that tried it. It's a very um, difficult why in some cases they did try to exploit the population because they were trying to make back the enormous losses from setting up the colony. Yeah. Um, a lot of uh, uh, British colonial policy in, in South Africa is driven by the need to save save money, right? They they think of invading Zululand and, and conquering it so that they don't have to spend money on soldiers there because it's just costing too damn much. And, you know, if we eliminate everyone, then no one can invade us. So, you know. And and this is a huge inversion. But I so I think when people talk about colonialism in South Africa, they they're very far from Goldie and uh, Carl Peters, the German and uh, and Cecil Rhodes, the guys who were trying to make money, um, and 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 some of them did out of the mines. I mean, the, the the only colonial enterprises that really made a lot of money were in the Far East, um, and that's because they were very different kinds. Of, that's because they were grounded not so much in exploiting natural resources as in exploiting um, agricultural products that had and things that that had already been established. And in fact, they more they would have made more money if they'd uh, managed to establish freer markets um in the mid run but anyway that to the side i think when people talk about colonialism in south africa what they're really talking about is war and in war there's another zero sum game like i invade your city i take your booty i enslave your women you've got less i've got more right it's not quite zero sum because actually you're going to break some stuff in the in the, in the meanwhile so the pie will shrink yeah. but you're going to change it's, it's who gets what <laughs> It's a negative sum game, but you can you can gain by it. And so the idea is that Europe and America made their wealth in that way. Never mind the fact 
What matters about it is getting the zero-sum game mindset in there. And you can call it sharing, and that's what it is when it's really sweet. You can also call it grabbing or looting or stealing or raping or mm. pillaging. And you think, well, that's the only way to get ahead. That's how they got ahead, so that's, that's going to be how we get ahead. And, and then the third one is to think of capitalism itself as a, as, a, as a system that doesn't actually add value. And so it's very important to not look at living standards increases, to not look at the difference in lifestyles right. today versus 20 years ago, 20 years ago versus 60 years before that, and so on and so forth. You have to just do it from the hip, sort of feeling how uh, things haven't really gotten better. And, 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 so, and so I think that Becky's problem was that while he was addressing the, 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 the mistakes that people were making in terms of facts and logic in each particular step, in each of these three steps, he wasn't critiquing the underlying principle that runs through all three steps, right. which is that they're which thinking the within a framework thing. of the zero-sum game. And, and, the, and the reason that that's a mistake is that it's a, there, there's an interesting mathematical property where if you give me five dimensions, I can give you, I can create a three-dimensional sphere that's inside of another three-dimensional sphere, but the second three-dimensional sphere is also inside the first three-dimensional sphere. And it's a little bit like a Moebius loop. You know, Moebius loop is like a, a band, a two-dimensional band, like a circle, like a, a, a wedding band, a ring or something, and you start at a point and you go around, you come to the same point. But if you slit it, if you cut it, and you take the two ends and you invert them, then if I start at one point and go around 360 degrees, I'm going to come back oh. to a different point because now I'm going to be on the inside of the band when I started on the okay. outside. And I'm going to have mm. to go around a second time to get to the outside of the band. So there's a sense in which you're going to... Uh, you don't get the normal symmetry of, of go around 360 degrees in a circle, you come back to the same point. Uh, you have to go around twice. And, and you sort of take that from two dimensions, three dimensions within five dimensions, and you can get this sort of one sphere inside of a second and the seconds inside of a first. And this is like the nightmare of Russian dolls. Like at least with Russian dolls, <laughs> like one's inside of the other, inside of the other, inside of the other, but you finally get uh, the first Russian dolls. Yeah, you I get to the small one. You get to Vladimir Ilyich Lenin eventually. He's there in the middle. <laughs> Little Lenin, yes. <laughs> Inside, in his Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, uh, and so on, and Putin on the outside. But, but with these ideas, if you don't, un if you don't uh, find that common principle on the fifth dimension, as it were, you're inside this loop where you debunk the land only to get to colonialism, you debunk colonialism as the way white people got rich, only to get to capitalism as this oppressive sort of system. And then you debunk that only to find that you're inside the land question again. <laughs> and yes. you keep going in this, in, this, in this very twisted, bizarre circle. And so I think that, I think the reason that people get stuck in, in uh, the stupid of race nationalism is that they're not cynical enough. They're not, they're not cynical enough to get into that mode of thought of like, look, here's what I want. I want to add value yeah. here. And 
I want to know why would someone try and stop me from doing that? Well, they'd stop you from doing that because they don't think they can add value. All they think they can do is grab value. So they want me and everyone else to get stuck in a zero-sum game way of thinking. And as long as they have us there, they can manipulate the market of politics and property and esteem and in ways that us, suit yeah. their own ends. And I and you We're need to be a bit wins. cynical. You need to think. You need to think like a hunter. You start out by hunting. Yes, it's one thing once the buffalo's there, how do we share it up? It's another thing when you're actually hunting for a buffalo. Because a buffalo that's injured can turn around and kill you. Right. Uh, a, a group of Gemsbok can can sort of march with the wind in a way that makes it very hard to creep up on them. Real hunting, real value-add projects like, like, like anything in business require getting into the minds both of your customer and of your competitor. Yeah. And I think that there's a bit of a lack outfoxing them. In 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 asking how am I are they outfoxing me or am I outfoxing them? That's mm. my that's my latent mm. suspicion is that we, is that is that the goodwill romanticism uh, that that all woke politics kind of starts out with. And I mean woke politics in the sense that totally does uh, connect to Hitler. Right, he started out with this beautiful thing, like you know, we, we we must be very nice to each other, and it's been very difficult, you know, with the with the collapse of Germany, and we, we really have to hold hands and work together. That was completely his message, and so it kind of gets the the family good vibes going, and and when it comes to dominate, is when people aren't cynical enough to to ask, is this are what you are you proposing just another way to cut the cake? Are you getting in the way of my chances of baking a whole new cake? Because if that's what you're up to, screw you. I think that's a very natural response. When people see that their projects are being undermined by dividers, then you don't need to educate them about GDP, government revenue coefficients, or capital to income ratios, or <laughs> Or, or, or where most GDP growth came from in Europe and, and, and America in the right. 18th century. They just will naturally push against it. But we don't push against it because of a reigning romanticism. I'm not sure if I'm right, and I'm not sure if that even ties into um, to what I was saying to, to, to Becky. But... But, but, but I, anyway, that's, that's, my, that's my kind of Sorry, feeling have- of the week. Yeah, so that 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 does make some sense. Um, I I definitely need to think about it more. Sorry, just to add to your point, who is this quote from? Words build bridges into unexplored regions. That was Hitler, wasn't it? That was out of Hitler. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think that does make a lot of sense. I'd, I'd also add there is a a sort of esteem point here, which is I think some ideas get so baked into people's sort of worldview that they're just kind of normal like you think you know uh, uh, let me try and think of some examples so an example could be like we all in south africa call a traffic light a robot and it's just that's just the kind of way things are and no one really thinks about it it's just so sort of core and fundamental and that if you 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 use a word other than robot people are like what are you some kind of american or something Mm. Uh, roman people would do this too right they'd say ah, that man's house collapsed on him because he insulted the gods and he got bad luck. And he said, no, no, it's because termites termites ate through the wood. And he said, and then the Roman would say, yes, but the termites ate through the wood because he insulted the gods. 
yes. obviously. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> so so I think I think some of these race nationalist ideas they get so inculcated into a society. And in South Africa they were because apartheid inculcated them in both white and black South Africans in a lot of ways. It, well, it put them it, it put them in, in, in the core of how we view the world, that these just became unspoken assumptions that just this is how the world works. The world is one race against another, and you've just got to grab things for your race because otherwise you're going to be a loser. And it's much it's much less of a change to then say, well, look, that the apartheid guys had it wrong because they thought that white people should be here and black people should be there and white people should be like this and black people should be like that. Instead, white people should be like this and black people should be like that and and <laughs> position should right. be changed and so on. So you you hold on to the right. underlying sort of divisive structure yeah but you, yeah, you it's, you it's say, better look, we're better look, racialists than they were yeah exactly we're gonna we're gonna instead of being like them who wanted everything on one side we're gonna share it more evenly between the two sides uh but the fundamental is still the two sides in conflict and the one side is more powerful than the other but because we're better people because we're more benevolent we'll share it more nicely between the races that's kind okay, of but, in, a, in a sense some of the anc and eff argument <laughs> But so this is why I like the cynicalism. I mean, the, this is why I think we've got a lack of cynicism. Partly it's because right. I've just been talking with my, my fiance a lot about the difference in South African politics and Russian politics. And we just, we're just amazed, <laughs> especially during anti-racism week, at how uncynical so many South Africans are, and how quickly they drink down the Kool-Aid. And the same thing with this, like, this, this scandal in America that we covered at the start of it. It's just like people are so quick to believe. And right. in Russia, Americans oh are not a cynical people. <laughs> in Russia, yeah, I can they, only imagine. they don't believe it. I mean, they'll kind of buy it. The, they they probably have too much cynicism, though. <laughs> yes, no, they do. They do. But this is where I'm interested in cynicism. What I think, you know, uh, Diogenes was the original cynic, and and his and and the reason he can't cynic just means dog. He said, "Here's the difference between me and you." All of you philosophers, all of you talking heads, you're getting paid to say things and you end up saying the things that suit the people that are paying you. The difference yes. between me and you is I'm prepared to admit that. <laughs> and because you can't admit that, you can't admit the first truth of your life. And so you're doomed for the rest of it. Because I can admit it, I like a dog will bark at the other and 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 uh, purr nicely or whatever, wag my tail when the master comes. I have got a more solid intellectual grounding. And I think for talking heads, it's the hardest thing to talk about. But I absolutely, like my career is entirely driven out of uh, the, the, the funding that the Institute of Race Relations does. It's totally, and, and people pay us to send a message of non-racialism, facts-based thinking. Right. And and I know that. And I'm prepared to admit that to anyone. That is, that's like, that's my badge of honor, in fact. I think it is an honor to to live a life no, no, where I, my breakfast, lunch, and dinner is paid by people who who, who want me to spread this message. And I, I and, agree with you completely. I I come from a from a world of uh, DA party people. That's my family, that's my background. And being a sort of you know, there with a mission and a very obvious agenda is is also, I think it's nothing to be ashamed of. Absolutely not. And 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 if you take it, things are a bit funny with the talking heads. Uh, 
but but take it to like another kind of job the dentist the general practitioner doctor the the lawyer you know you know exactly what you're paying for and they know what they're trying to do in order to get paid and what they're trying to do is add value to your life and that's the right. when when i talk about cynicism i'm talking about this this thing of like of ultimately want to leave wanting to leave the world in a better way than you found it in however small or bigger way that is a profoundly cynical thing to do you're saying like you know i want to be respected by my peers because i've done something good and i want to do something good because i think that's the only respectable way to be and right. and that's on the esteem side on the market side i want to add value to your life i want to fix your car so you give me some money that's why i'm doing it our agendas are right. open, so they withstand the it's cynical not because critique. I'm trying to be your friend. The cynical right. critique is like, but why are you really doing this? And if you can't give a good answer, then it shows that you're you're a scallywag. Yes. And 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 the people that can best best withstand the cynical critique are people who, I believe, are not in the zero sum way of thinking. People in the zero sum way of thinking. When you're sitting around the dinner table and you're carving it up, and you say. You know, Ma, why are you giving Dad the nice piece of chicken? And she's like, you know, because, you know, whatever she says is going to sound like nonsense. Because if she <laughs> says she's doing it for Dad or because it's the right thing to do, you're going to be like, no, you just want him to be happy because then he'll, like, drive you to the dentist tomorrow or, like, fix the leaky roof like you asked him to do right, before dinner. You know, it, it just seems like when, you, when you're in that zero-sum thinking way, everything becomes a trade-off because there is no value to add. Everything becomes yes. a trade-off. And the bizarre thing is when you, when you just think a little bit cynically, then you can think in a bit of a zero-sum uh, a value-add kind of way. You can let go of the zero-sum thing, and then you can find a real win-win. And then the trade no longer seems like a thing to shy away from and start seeming like uh, something to actually advertise. You know, My, my right. reason itself is part of the value-add proposition. <laughs> and exactly. and I think that's I think that's um, at some level that's that's what I see in societies that I've lived in or or read about that have been doing really well right. is that confidence to say what I'm doing why I'm doing it that I really do I'm not just redistributing I'm making more than there ever was I'm making something out of nothing I really am doing that right and. And writers and talkers, of course, we're in a privileged position because words are the easiest things to make out of nothing. <laughs> but, but manufacturers and, and restaurateurs and, and dare one even say it, you know, excellent masseuses, they're also making something out of nothing. And they deserve our respects. Indeed. Uh, so in conclusion, wear your agenda on your badge and add value. Uh, wear your agenda on your sleeve and add value. I think that's... That's that's always good advice. Um, excepting 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 at Christmas. At Christmas, you you can leave it all to the side <laughs> yeah, and just try and be Christmas happy. Is just right, be happy. That's, that's Christmas is for. Yeah. Um, but we must call it to a close because we are we are late. Uh, any recommendations? Yeah, I, I I'm going to say the name of the LA Times piece again. Tracy Quinn or Quan Q U A N. I I don't agree with everything she says, but I, I I you know I think it's very provocative. I think it's very interesting and sensitive. And I think sensitivity is 
is is a hard thing to find after trauma. And you know, however untru you know, you might not find it very traumatic, but it's a scary thing to think about people being killed. And so it's easy to stop thinking and and kind of become numb and just try and push through it. And I think that if you read that piece, uh, it might just open your heart a bit. As right. well as opening um, your mind. It's not just a touchy feeling. I mean, there's real politics there. Yeah. So I have um, some fun recommend, uh, some not very, not very, not a very niche recommendations. The one is uh, my This Week in History, which is on the dailyfriend.ca.za. Oh, uh, Dude, tell I us wrote, about that. <laughs> All right. Oh, well, uh, the second story, I guess I'm ruining it here, but I'll, I'll tell it anyway, is that uh, oh, it's too good. In, in the late in the late 1500s, Morocco uh, was was bankrupt from fighting the Portuguese, and it decided that it needed to find some wealth somewhere, right? So it looked across the Sahara to the south, and it saw the big West African empire, I think one of the largest indigenous sub-Saharan African empires, the Songhai Empire. And the Moroccans thought, you know, sounds like a real good time for a big old raid. We can go and attack them and get all of their gold and salt and that, and that stuff. There was far less loot than they realized because a lot of uh, Songhai's wealth came from taxing trade rather than pulling stuff out of the ground. But uh, they would only discover that later. So the Moroccan sultan said, right, we need to get our, our best equipment and stuff on this job. We're going to take a whole bunch of dudes with, with early firearms and horses and camels and all that good stuff. And the only person who I trust to lead this is a Spanish-born eunuch. <laughs> uh, a, a man a man who was captured from Spain and castrated when he was like a child and then went on to become a senior officer in the Moroccan army. This was actually a very common practice in the Islamic world at the time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they also decided to get the best cannons they could afford, which were made in England. So <laughs> a, a Spanish eunuch leading an army of Moroccans hauling English cannons marched into West Africa and faced off against the army of the West African Songhai. Songhai, seeing this army, even though they outnumbered it, they said, oh, no, they've got firearms and cannons. This is a bit worrying. Uh, we need to try and even the score somehow. So they thought, uh, the greatest thing to do, and this has been done many times in, in battles by African empires, you stampede cattle at the enemy. And then the cattle wax into them and it disrupts them, and then you can yeah. sweep them up and destroy them. In Ethiopia, they also used to do this a lot. Right. And in fact, the Portuguese, when they tried to set up a colony in Cape Town, the Khoisan drove them off by charging them with cattle, which is an interesting story for another day. Um, so they 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 advance uh, with this huge horde of cattle. They chase it at the Moroccans and the Moroccans realize in a split second what to do. They fire their cannons and guns over the head of the cattle. It turns around and it tramples back over the Songhai soldiers. Uh, a battle then ensues and as expected, the, the technological superiority of the Moroccans manages to rout the Songhai. Then the Moroccans go on to burn down the major cities of Gaal, Timbuktu, and Dijene, uh, which they burn to the ground, loot completely. They don't get as much money as they thought, but they do get some. And then they basically go back to Morocco. The Moroccans hold on to some cities south of the Sahara for about 30 years, but lose control of them. But the net effect of this is the Songhai Empire is completely devastated falls apart, and so it disappears Africa's largest state. Um, it's just a weird little piece of history. And for me, what's interesting about it is how incredibly international the world was in the 1500s. We don't think of it, you know, it's like, it's only, what, 100 years after uh, Columbus goes to America. 
Mm. And yet, you know, you've got all this trade and interaction going on and cultures clashing and mixing in ways that you usually don't expect in the stereotype. Uh, and yet there it was. Uh, and yeah, so that's my recommendation. And uh, anything to add, Gabriel, before we close? Yeah, no, I strongly second that. I think I think Nicholas <laughs> tells the story well, but it's also good to see it in writing. Uh, there's some details there. And, and uh, I can't also, remember the names of anyone. <laughs> the, he, he, he also does. He he remembers this week in history the the Germans uh, took on the old uh, the Austrians in the Anschluss. Right. Although Nicholas and I, part of the reason we had such a long conversation was that uh, I disagree with him about characterizing the Austrians as fascists. So I don't know. As a last recommendation, figure out what you think fascism means. Right. And if you if you disagree with Nick, please send him uh, very angry emails. <laughs> Because I think if you're not a racist, you're not a fascist. I, uh, <laughs> I think I think you could be a non-racist fascist, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> all right. So, yeah, let's call it to a close there. Uh, of course, we are <laughs> one hour, 20 minutes. But anyway, uh, have a wonderful long weekend. Uh, this should come out on either Sunday or Monday. Um, but anyway, have a good oh, wait, week. Hold on. Enjoy before, Easter. Before, yeah. before, we, before we sign off. Um, I see that a South African made it to the finals in tennis of one of the ATP 500 tournaments. Uh, I can't oh, remember wonderful. his name. I've been trying to watch him, but uh, they haven't been showing on, on the DSTV. Uh, but, you know, uh, we like talking about the steam market. I think uh, South Africans doing well. All creeds, colors, and classes. We come together under a flag. And sports, one of those really nice ways where people generally don't get very badly hurt. And it's quite entertaining and excellent. And it makes me jolly chuffed just to know that there's South Africans doing good things. And uh, I'm going to be uh, finding a way to stream that. Uh, anyway, keep keep a lookout for, for, for that little fresh bit of South African excellence. Here, here. And uh, keep that flag of liberty flying. <laughs>